You're listening to The 66, a podcast as a part of the ministries of the Asheville Road Church of Christ, where we go through the books of the Bible in a three-step process. We read, we think, and we apply the biblical text. And today we're going to do that with Nehemiah chapters 2 through 6. We're going to go about halfway through chapter 6. And we're in the middle of our series on the restoration of the people of Israel. And we've already covered the book of Ezra, and we've already covered the first, pretty much the entire first two chapters of Nehemiah. And what we're looking at today is from chapter 2, verse 19, all the way to chapter 6, verse 14. And our topic for today is an opposed city. So last week we talked about an envisioned city, and this week we're talking about an opposed city. Just to give you a little bit of background, what's going on here. In chapter 2, Nehemiah is commissioned by Artaxerxes, the Persian king the son of the famed Xerxes from history. Uh, He sent Nehemiah to Jerusalem with permission to rebuild the city that, as we know, is currently lying in ruins. Uh, So Nehemiah gets there, he examines the walls, and then he announces his plan to everybody, and everybody's pumped up. Everybody's ready to go. They strengthen their hands for the work. They're ready to get started. And just like maybe in a movie, if you watch a movie and everything is really, really happy, then you know what's coming next. Something bad is about to happen. I have to have a crisis. Yeah. I have to have some tension for the mm-hmm. story to be interesting. Yeah. And so we're kind of, this is where we are. Everything is great. It's, uh, you look at verse 18. This is where we left off with our last episode. I told them the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And also the words that the king has spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. So everything is great. We're about to start rebuilding. Nehemiah's envisioned city is about to come to fruition. It's about to be built. Everybody's ready to go. Well, guess what? Verse 19. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, servant and Geshem and Arab, or Geshem the Arab, heard of it, They jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion of right or claim in Jerusalem. So this is just the very beginning of the opposition that they're going to face, and thus the title for our episode this week of An Opposed City. And really, this this is all we have mentioned so far of opposition It's kind of a foreshadowing of what's to come in chapter 4 and then again in chapter 6. And so right here, let's pick up in chapter 3, where you're going to see the rebuilding begins in chapter 3. And uh, really what I got from this chapter is many hands make light work. Because what's going to happen here is all the different families that are currently in Jerusalem are going to get a piece of the wall, whether it's assigned to them or whether they get to choose what part of the wall doesn't really matter uh, at the end of the day, I guess, because they all have a specific part of the wall. And just for an example, let's read verses 1 and 2. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. I don't know how to say that. Hananel? Sure. Close. Hananel. Was that Hananel? not the name of the friend... No, it's Hananiah, right? Oh, yeah. In chapter 1, verse 2. Uh, I thought I'd discovered yeah. something live. Just thought I'd make a really oh, brilliant man. comment, and now 
<laughs> I see that I am not very brilliant. Go We're ahead. Close. We're Sorry. close. We're just missing a letter or two. Um, and then verse 2. Next to him, the men of Jericho built. Next to them, Zakur, the son of Emery, built. Then you keep going on. It says, next to them, these people built this, and then these people built that. So everybody's out there at the same time, it looks like, building different sections of the wall. And it starts off with the sheep gate, as you read in verse 1. Then it kind of goes around the whole city. And then when you get to the end of the chapter, you have again um, the sheep gate. Look at verse 32 at the end of chapter 3. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repair. So you kind of go all the way around the city, mm-hmm. starting at the sheep it's a gate. circle. Yeah. And now there's Sweet. folks outside of this wall everywhere. And they're all rebuilding. So it's going to get done pretty quickly. And we'll, we'll see just how quickly in our next episode but it's just a little more than 50 days. We'll talk more about that in our next one. But um, So rebuilding begins, and they're making a lot of progress. And now we get to chapter 4. So, so far we've had the rebuilding has begun. And now, at the start of chapter 4, the opposition is going to begin. So for the sake of outlining, if you want to make it easier to memorize chapter 3, rebuilding begins. Uh, the first 14 verses of chapter 4, opposition begins. In this first part, um, when Sanballat, this is verse 1 of chapter 4, when Sanballat heard that they were that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And they are, for whatever reason, they're upset that they are rebuilding, probably because this is a direct affront to Sanballat's authority as a governor over here in this part of the world. Um, a fortified Jerusalem would probably mean less power for him because at this time, Nehemiah is governor of the land of Judah. You can see that in chapter 5 and verse 14. Um, so Samballad is upset. They're trying to uh, stop them. Look in verse 6 of chapter 4. So we built the wall, and the wall was joined together to half its height. But the people had a mind to work. Now, the word for height there is not in the Hebrew. That just kind of comes out, makes it easier for us to understand in English. But in Hebrew, it literally says, and the wall was joined together to half. So it's halfway done. It's pretty much what we're looking at here. The work is halfway done. Um, and now there's some bad things going on. And I'm sure you're familiar with that saying, when it rains, it pours. When there's something goes wrong, everything else is going to go wrong too. Well, the first thing they got going wrong for them right now is that Sanballat and Tobiah want to kill them all. You can read in verses 1 through 4 that they're, uh, they're jeering at them, they're making fun of them. And then you read on in verses 7 through 8. Uh, when Sambal and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And then look in verse 11. And our enemies said, They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. So problem number one, these guys are trying to kill them. Problem number two, the people are getting tired. Look in verse 10. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. So the people are getting tired. Um, Also, the work appears to be too great for some people. Look at the end of this verse, or the next sentence of that verse. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to build the wall. And this is being said in Judah. This is being said among the people. So we have... Uh, there's, they're being opposed directly by their enemies trying to kill them, and they're having some problems within. The people are getting tired. The work seems like it's going to be too hard. And look what happens in verse 12. 
At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, You must return to us. So the Jews that are living in the nearby area are so concerned that they said, Look, you got to get out of there. Leave the city. They're going to come and kill you. You're, you're tired. There's too much work for you to do anyway. You need to leave there and come back to these lands of exile that you were in before so you'll be safe. You know, verse 10 in the New American Standard Bible, I've got two translations I'm looking at here. And the ESV sets it off in prose, but verse Mm -hmm. 10 in the New American Standard Bible is set off as a song in lines or as poetry Hmm. to suggest that this was a saying that was circulated around. That Hmm. people just continuously, it became a proverb that... Oh, wow. The strength of the burden bearers is failing, yet there is much rubbish and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. It's like something mm-hmm. that kids would sing as they skip rope or whatever. It was so common. Wow. And that seems to be what is suggested by it being set off in lines. Now, the translators of the ESV evidently didn't agree with that. Hmm. Um, but it just supports your point that internally they were, they were having some serious issues with morale by this oh, yeah. point. Things are really breaking down. Yeah. So there's, there's a great deal of trouble. There's opposition from outside of the people of Judah, obviously, with Sambalat and his servant Tobiah. Um, but there's problems within as well. Um, and Nehemiah's reaction here is great. Um, I really like Nehemiah's reaction. You look in verse 14. Um, actually, let's, let's go back and look in verse 13 first. The lowest parts of the space behind the wall and open places, I stationed the people by their clans, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Well, why not? And his next sentence explains that. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. Now, remember Nehemiah's prayer from chapter 1. He says the same thing, uh, the great and awesome God. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So Nehemiah's reaction to all these problems, he stations his defenses, and then he reacts with nothing but faith in God once again, just as he did in chapter 1, just as he's done the whole time up to this point, as he keeps saying that the good hand of God is on him, that God strengthens his hands, that God is with him throughout this whole book. He's just kind of there whenever Nehemiah needs him. Uh, Some really cool imagery. Um, And you read verses 15 to 23, What Nehemiah does is he has his people, uh, his servants, half of them are working on the walls, while half of them are armed for war. Look in verse 16. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. Um, Verse 17, he mentions that those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon in the other. Verse 18, each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. So they're ready to fight. The idea here is that Nehemiah is a part of his reaction. And this is uh, starting in verse 15. The rebuilding is going to really restart. It's going to restart. Oh, and we skipped something in verse 15, a really major point. I can't believe I skipped this. Uh, Our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan. We all returned to the wall, each to his work. So somehow God frustrated the plans of the enemies. And so everybody returns to work. So now the rebuilding has been restarted. Um, Nehemiah arms all of his people. They're ready to fight at any given moment. They've got their swords in their hands, their swords at their side. 
They're working from the break of dawn until the stars come out. You can read that in verse 21. And um, at night, they're actually going back in and they're guarding the city. Uh, So there's no rest here for these people. And you can read verse 23. Neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me. None of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. So this is their constant work here. They're either up working on the walls from morning till the stars come out or they're standing guard in, in the city at nighttime. So there's a lot going on here. Um, and then chapter 5 is kind of, doesn't really go along with what's going on in chapter 4 and in chapter 6, uh, but there's some there's some rebuilding in a figurative sense that has to take it that has to take place within the people of Israel. Uh, this and it's is, more opposition. It's another kind of obstacle mm-hmm. that Nehemiah is facing, and maybe that's why it fits in this part of the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes that makes sense, and I didn't think about that actually. So we have some more opposition coming from within, and it's kind of an interesting situation. What happens here, and you can read this in the first five verses. There's a famine going on, and there's some people that don't have enough money to eat. And what they've done, apparently, and you can check me on this, what they've done, apparently, is they've borrowed money from their fellow Jews to help them pay the king's taxes on their land. And what's happened is the people that they borrowed from are taking interest from the people that they've given loans to. So it's like if I, if I loan Drew five bucks... Then I start making Drew accrue interest over the next few days. Uh, that's what these people are doing to each other, uh, all a part of the nation of Israel. Um, it's so bad that it's to the point of where these people that are giving out loans have now become like the bank. They are they are in complete ownership of these people's property. They own their fields. They own their vineyards. Uh, you can read that at the end of verse 5. Um uh, and actually, their children are being forced to work as slaves for their own brothers in the nation of Israel. And this makes Nehemiah really upset. You can read in verse 6, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. Um, then there's an interesting phrase right there in verse 7, I took counsel with myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of like I said to myself, self, what's going yeah. on here? Um, but Nehemiah really takes him to task because... He has been trying to buy back all of the slaves, all the Jewish slaves that are out in different countries. He's been trying to buy them back, and he basically says, look, I'm trying to buy all these, all of our fellow countrymen back, and then you're putting them right back into slavery here in our own nation. Um, and he kind of rips into them. You can read in verse 8, um, he's held, he held this, great, held this great assembly and then says, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers so that they may be sold to us. And then look at their response. They were silent and could not find a word to say because they knew they were in the wrong. And so Nehemiah uh, pretty much traps them in the wrong and they all agree to give um, all these people back their land, their vineyards, their farms, their fields to stop making their children work for them as slaves um, and they, they actually come through on that promise. You can read at the end of verse 13, all the assembly said amen and praise the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. So kind of a big problem here that Nehemiah solves pretty handily uh, by just, I guess, guilting these people into realizing what you're doing is wrong, 
And so they stop doing it, and they forgive the debts that are owed. The Jewish people forgive the debts that they are owed by their fellow countrymen. Um, and then in verses 14 and following, we have a little note about the generosity of Nehemiah, perhaps maybe to bolster this claim that's going on in chapter 5. He's asking everybody else to forgive the debts that are owed to them. And then he says, and then we have here, we realize that Nehemiah um, is kind of foregoing some of the luxuries that he could have as governor. He could have a lot of food. Look in verse 15. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Now they did that, you're reading verse 14, for uh, the food allowance for the governor. Nehemiah doesn't do that because he knows his people need food. He knows his people are in a time of famine. And so he does not accept this ration. He does not exact a tax, I guess kind of a tax from his people because he knows they need the money. Um, which is a very, a very, uh, I guess, inspiring, a very encouraging thing if you're a Jewish person at this time, that your leader is foregoing some of these things because he's just one of the regular people. He doesn't it's view himself very, too high. Uh, different from ancient mindsets towards leaders today in America. We, we don't. I mean, we still have problems with it, but in theory, our leaders are supposed to be servants of the people. So that's the way Americans look at leadership. But they didn't look at it that way. Leaders were kings, and even Nehemiah had an esteemed position and was entitled to all of these things. And for him to forego it and say, I'm just one of you, very radical style of leadership there that mm-hmm. he's showing. Yeah. And this Trying would... to be part of the solution. Yeah. Not just coming up with a solution, but also offering to be a part of the solution. Mm-hmm. It'd be like if your congressman announced that he wasn't going to accept his salary. Don't hold your breath on that. It's yeah. not going to happen. Yeah. Um, I don't really like what you said. Be a part of the solution. Um, we'll come back to that in the application section um, at the end of this. Uh, but we have right here at the end of chapter 5, really, uh, you can call this, I guess, opposition from within or rebuilding the integrity of the people, whatever you want to call it. But uh, so far we've had... Rebuilding has begun, opposition has begun, the rebuilding restarted, and now we have this big problem. Now in chapter 6, we have more opposition. So the opposition is going to pick back up. Um, Starting in verse 1, these same people, Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, they get together and they try and trick Nehemiah. They send him this letter and says, hey, come and meet us um, in the plain of Anno. And uh, Nehemiah knows they intend to do him harm. And um, he sends him a message saying, I'm doing a great work and I can't come. Why should I come down and stop? Uh, or why should I let this work stop and leave it and come down to you? And they send him this same letter four times. And then a fifth time, Sanballat sends him an open letter um, that was written in his own hand. An open letter means this is going to be public. Anybody can see this. So this would be uh, all of the Jewish people would probably, or most of them would have this knowledge here. And he writes to him, it's reported among the nations. And Geshem also says that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That's why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you've also set up prophets to proclaim you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So come and let us take counsel together. So basically they've made up this story to try and get the Jewish people uh 
I guess, scared that Artaxerxes is going to hear this rumor and come in and wipe them all out. Uh, try and quell this rebellion before it ever gets started. Nehemiah's response for that is pretty good. He says, Then I said to them, saying, No such things as you say have done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. And he was exactly right. They were inventing them out of their own mind. Uh, Nehemiah doesn't fall for it. Um, and then in verses 10 through 13, he is Nehemiah is opposed by one of his own people. Um, he goes to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah. Um, and this guy tells him to come into the temple of God. We'll close the doors, so they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. And then Nehemiah responds, saying, Should a man such as I run away? And this is in verse 11. And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. Verse 12, I understood that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced a prophecy against me because of Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. So there's lots of opposition going on here from outside. These guys have even hired someone within the walls of Jerusalem to try and prophesy against Nehemiah. But Nehemiah is not having it because he can recognize who is from God and who is not. And through all of this, he does not waver. And in our next episode, we're going to see where that gets him. So at this point, we have a little opposition uh, coming back here at Nehemiah. Some lies that are coming at him that I think we'll cover more in the last section of this. We also have a question that was sent in regarding our first episode of Ezra. And uh, we're going to answer that question at the very end of the podcast. Here's a word I had never heard before today in studying for this. And that is the word imprecatory. You've never heard that until today? I literally never heard that word until today. And the reason this comes up is in Nehemiah chapter 4. Probably the same with our listeners. Yeah. Probably so. It's a weird word. Um, It's fun though. Yeah, imprecatory. 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 Yeah. Say it really fast. Yeah, makes you sound smart, I guess. To one and, and I'll say words. it may be a case of onomatopoeia, which I don't know if you've heard that word before. I think so. Yeah, but fifth grade. It imprecatory. You know, you get some spit going on that, and it means mm-hmm. an angry prayer, right? Yeah. So yeah. It kind of sounds like the meaning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. Maybe a way to remember the the word yeah. for the future. I can guarantee you, I will not, I will not forget that now. That's <laughs> all I needed. Was that little way to remember it. But look in chapter four and verse four. This is right after uh, we have the we have the jeering going on of Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, these guys. Um, you see, Tobiah in verse three says, "Yes, what they are building. If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their wall." So they're making fun of them, saying, what are these? What are they going to build it in a day? These feeble Jews, they can't do this. And now here's Nehemiah's response in verse 4. Hear, O God, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. That's some pretty harsh words. He is calling on God himself to come in and just really do not cover their guilt. 
Don't let their sin be blotted out in your sight. He wants them to be taken to task for the things that they are saying and for the things that they've done to oppose the work of the builders. Now, the ESV has actually softened it up a little bit. Really? You know how you read uh, the end of the prayer says, They have provoked you. They have provoked mm-hmm. you, God, to anger in the presence of these builders, and that's why I'm praying this prayer. Mm-hmm. That's his explanatory note at the end of the prayer. But the in a, the New American Standard Bible has a more uh, literal translation here, which says, mm-hmm. for they have demoralized the builders. There's a mm-hmm. big difference between the explanatory note at the end of the NSAB, did I say that right? Mm-hmm. And the explanatory note at the end of verse 5 in the ESV. Yeah. Because in the ESV, it basically says, I'm mad because they blasphemed you. Mm-hmm. And in the New American Standard Bible, it's, I'm mad because they spoke evil against the builders. Yeah. So, and, and the New American Standard mm-hmm. Bible is closer to the original wording, which mm-hmm. is basically, they have offended against. Yeah. So maybe, maybe it's, is it the builders? The NASB says they've offended against the builders. Mm-hmm. The ESV says they've offended against God. And in a lot of commentaries that you read, they're trying to explain Nehemiah's emotions away that way, saying, well, he's only he's only coming down hard on them in that prayer mm-hmm. because they spoke against God and you don't speak against God. And that's how yeah. you explain this imprecatory, angry prayer. Mm-hmm. But I just wanted to interject that because I noticed it a while ago. Yeah, that's um, really cool. Please continue. <laughs> okay. Uh, this word... Imprecatory, as we said, it's a fancy word for exactly what it looks like. It's a a pronouncement of judgment, calamity, or now this is going to be important in just a second. It's also a curse against one's enemies or the enemies of God. Um, you can see a really good example of this in Psalm thirty-five, um, and you can look and see what David has to say. Look in verse one: "Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me." Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the, the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Now here comes some of this pronouncement of judgment or pretty much they, he wants them to get what's coming to him. Look in verse 4. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like Chaff before the wind, with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery, for the angel of the Lord, with the angel of the Lord, pursuing them. And you can look over in verse 19. He's got some more things to say about them. Uh, you continue on all the way down. Look in verse 24. This is all about this right here. Vindicate me, O Lord my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. These people want to be vindicated for the wrong that they are receiving. And this goes along with almost all of these. Well, can, I, can I read an example? Mm-hmm. I've got yeah. one um, from Psalm 137. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, so this is, I'll start in verse 7 just to get the, the harshest part of it. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be 
who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Blessed be the person who kills your babies. You know, that that is an angry prayer. And it puts, you know, a preacher in a difficult position when somebody asks, you know, explain this prayer. Does God approve of prayers that call for the demise of one's enemies? Mm-hmm. That's the problem of an imprecatory psalm or an imprecatory prayer. And Nehemiah is definitely in this category here. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, remember... Well, I'm, I'm, I'll let you continue to introduce it because it's just so different. I think yeah. we're going to say it's very different from Sermon on the Mount. Yes, it's very different from that. Uh, if, by the way, if you want some more examples of those kind of psalms, uh, there's one in Psalm 7, Psalm 58... Psalm 69, 83, 109, and 139, if you want to go and look at those. Uh, there's a few in the New Testament. Paul, makes uh, he quotes Psalm 69. Um, it says, David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap. Um, let their eyes be darkened so they can't see and bend their backs forever. Galatians 1, 8 through 9. This is Paul again. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Then in 2 Timothy 4, 14, he, he has a personal one. Paul does. He says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. And so the question is, as you just brought up, how does this line up with the Sermon on the Mount? Because we have really two things here. Jesus says in Matthew five thirty nine, Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Matthew five forty four. But I say to you, love your enemies... And pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now, these guys are praying for those who persecute them, but they're not praying, they're praying for them. praying for them to die. Yes, they're praying in for bad, evil. terrible way. Yeah, they're praying for lots yeah. of bad things to befall them, mm-hmm. which seems to fly in the face of what Jesus has taught. And so that's the question that I think we need to, to decipher, or at least come to uh, some sort of conclusion about in this section for podcast is how do we line up these imprecatory psalms with the teachings of Jesus? There's there's only a few options here. Option A. This is an example of how we should pray today. That mm-hmm. this is, you know, we when people cross us, we call down fire from heaven on them. That that's one application that is a possible interpretation. B um, Nehemiah was wrong. That That's another possibility. See, mm-hmm. possibly the ESV is leading us in the right direction, and this is where a lot of commentators sit, is that he was defending God, not himself. So it's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we need to do when we read the Bible, a very important clue to this whole um, interpretation problem is the the speaker. One of the big rules of biblical interpretation is to identify the speaker and identify the audience. Well, the speaker here is Nehemiah. It's not Jesus Christ. It's Nehemiah, a guy just like you and me. He was an amazing leader, but he was not perfect. 
And I think also what is helpful is to look at the timing of this prayer. Did you notice how quickly this prayer was uttered? Mm-hmm. And, you know, so they say uh, in verse 3, you know, if a fox goes on the wall, it's going to fall down. And then it's almost, you know, it seems like it's immediate that Nehemiah hears it and just bows his head and says, Hear, O God, for we are despised. Do you hear that? He's speaking to God. So it's immediate. He's Listen to that. Did you hear that, God? He didn't have a lot of time to think about it and to control himself and to collect himself as he did, you know, uh, one of the other passages that you read where he consulted with himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, that was a time where Nehemiah had a minute to go off by himself and count to ten, but he didn't do that here. Just immediate. Hear, O God, for we are despised. And I think that's a very important thing. You're considering this comes from an imperfect man in a situation where he hasn't had time to cool down. And his reaction is, instead of, you know, hurling insults back at this person or making a defense at a person who's not going to listen to him anyway, to bow his head and vent to God. Now, out of all the... Anger is tough to control. And out of all the humanly possible ways to deal with this pressure that's facing Nehemiah, Did he not choose a pretty good way to vent? He could have exploded at the enemies who would have used that against him. He could have gotten all defensive, which I hate that when somebody is, Mm -hmm. you know, attacked harshly and they get all defensive towards people who aren't even listening to them. He didn't do that. He didn't take it out on his loved ones. He didn't go home and beat his wife or, you know, Mm -hmm. go, go, uh, you know, tear up the Israelites because people are picking on him. He bowed his head, and he gave it to God who can handle it. He gave it to God, and that's what a prayer is. He's unloading this on God, and I wouldn't stand behind everything that he says here. I don't think it's in the spirit of Christ what he said, but I do think that the example may not be the content of the prayer, but the um, timing of the prayer and the feelings of the prayer and the faith of the prayer that God, God can absorb this I do think that's an example for us. And we'd have a lot less anger management trouble today if we handled pressure the way that he handles it here. And I I think that's the explanation. It's not a real simple pat answer. Yes, God likes imprecatory prayers or no, but it's a very human and real life solution that uh, we can can use Mm -hmm. in our prayer life. It reminds me of Romans twelve nineteen that I've got right here. What you said, Nehemiah, he doesn't take matters into his own hands and go out and try and kill yeah. Sambalat and Tobiah yeah, and Geshem. Uh, Romans twelve nineteen says, says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So I definitely agree with what you said. This does not appear to be in the spirit of Jesus because when Jesus' hands are nailed into the cross, his reaction is, forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they're doing. I mean, that's just, you cannot find a better example of how, you know, of where Jesus, I guess, putting his money where his mouth is when he says... Nehemiah wouldn't have said that. (laughs) Now, had he become a Christian, he might have. Mm-hmm. 
But he, he had not had that opportunity. Yeah. And Nehemiah would have been saying, I want the nails going to their hands. Yeah. But that's pre-Christ. You can't hold that against him. Yeah. Jesus was really showing us something new mm-hmm. and showing us God when when he was crucified in that manner. Now, I do think a lot of this has to do with giving the vengeance to the one who has the the job of vengeance, like Romans 12 said. Mm-hmm. And that that's a very important part of the the explanation. Nehemiah is responsibly handing his vengeance over to the one who can handle it. Mm-hmm. If, uh, if it's God's will to forgive these men, Nehemiah will go along with that. Yeah. In Psalm 137, the Jews, you have to give it to them. They didn't go kill babies. They just fantasized about it to mm-hmm. God. And they knew, I'm going to give this to God and if if it's right to kill these babies, which it's not. Yeah. But if it's right, he'll do it. But if it's not right, he won't do it. Mm-hmm. And so they, um, they're, they're, it's more of a, you, we shouldn't read it as an exemplary prayer as much as we should read it as a, a vent or, you know, an emotional outburst. Mm-hmm. And we're not used to, it's really a reflection on us that we have a problem with this. Because what do we do when we throw our temper tantrums? They're not prayers. Yeah. They're you know, directed we're kicking at walls somebody. and throwing stuff and yeah. saying things we shouldn't say to p- other people and trying to hurt people. Or clamming up and trying to internalize everything and getting ulcers and mm-hmm. and not being very helpful. Or But look at the results of this explosion in verses 4 and 5. Verse 6, so we built the wall. He was able to get back to work because mm-hmm. he was able to clear his head so quickly. He gave it the attention it deserved. It did not deserve a defense. It did not deserve a response. It deserved an imprecatory prayer and then back to work. Mm-hmm. That was the best way to re- re- refute or rebuke the enemies, was to mm-hmm. handle it that way. Yeah, and I think, I mean, the applications you can make from this are you know, just about endless for the problems that we face, you know, and I don't want to, I don't think we're going to cover this in our, in our next section on, on apply. Um, so I guess it bears a little bit of, of mentioning here. Um, you look in Romans 12 and verse 14, Paul says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. In verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. So both Jesus and Paul appear to be in harmony on um, being against praying for calamity upon your enemies. Uh, there's some, well, no, never mind. I was going to mention that country song that talks about praying for people, but out of dislike for that song, I refuse. Um, <laughs> uh, it's not where you pray for somebody, but you pray for them to die, or you pray for calamity to come upon them. Don't curse them. And as we read, the very definition of this imprecatory psalm can be a curse against one's enemies. So I really do think that this is, for us as followers of Christ, we're following the example. We're not um, followers of Nehemiah. We don't wear the name of Nehemiah. We wear the name of Christ. And what Christ, his reaction, the only people that Christ ever lashed out at were the people that were supposedly very spiritual, were the Pharisees, the scribes. 
the people who tied heavy burdens on other people's backs, but they themselves were not willing to lift a finger. Those are the people that Jesus had a problem with, misrepresenting God. Those are the people that Jesus had a problem with. Uh, with the people that nailed his hands into the into the cross, as we mentioned a second ago, he says, forgive them. And I think that's the attitude that we certainly need to have. As hard as it might be, you know, our prayer needs to be forgive them. Our prayer needs to be to help us somehow reach them. But I do think, um, and you look and you look at what Paul says in Second Timothy four, fourteen. He's talking about this guy Alexander the coppersmith. He says he did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is what it kind of seems, and what Nehemiah is doing as well. They're praying for justice. They're not taking matters in their own hands, but they are praying that justice be done to these people. You know, they have done this. And justice, according to God, demands that these people be punished if they don't repent. Right. And, you, know, I, you know, I think a lot of people think Christian love is injustice. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing as injustice. And really, when they say God is love, and they define that as God is only love, and God's mm-hmm. not going to send anybody to hell, and God is not going to judge anybody, and he's not, gonna, he's not a God of wrath, when they say that, what they mean is love is injustice. And that is not an Old Testament or a New Testament doctrine. Love protects that which it cherishes, which means when somebody you love or something you love is threatened, you hate that thing. You know, Solomon lists Mm -hmm. seven things the Lord hates. And there are Mm -hmm. examples in the New Testament of things that the Lord hates. Uh, One more thing before we move on to something else. When you are feeling these feelings... Isn't it better to go ahead and express them to God in prayer than to bottle them up? Because you're not Mm -hmm. fooling God with your hiding it. He already knows it's in there. So you might as well get it out in the open and express it. And in your honesty of prayer, as you're expressing it, it will change you. You will become more compassionate and you will soften. But if you bottle it up, it's like you're fooling yourself into thinking that you really don't have those feelings. You bring them out into the open in prayer, not to your friends, not to your enemies, not to discourage others who are watching your influence, but in prayer to God in private. And you'll see how even that act will change you into becoming more merciful and forgiving as Christ was. You know, the main theme of this is opposition, so it you know, it stands to reason that we would make applications having to do with opposition, how to deal with opposition, and Nehemiah is always upheld as a great example of somebody who could handle enemies and handle opposition as a leader should. As you look at this, the opposition basically comes in one form. There's all kinds of opposition, but in this case, it's deceit or lies, which is fitting as Christians, our adversary is the devil, and uh, he's called the father of lies in John chapter 8, verse 44. So this is a great example for us, a good practice for us to, to study this passage of Scripture. And I, I got to going through this and looking at the different forms of opposition. And as I said, every time it was a lie of some kind, but there were some very interesting forms of deceit here. 
as I went through and began to delineate the opposition. So we're going to go through these for our application and look at the opposition. And with every opposition, there is an appropriate, wise, godly response. And we don't have time to you know flesh it out a whole lot, but just by listing it, I think it'll be you know profitable for mm-hmm. us to do. So we'll start at the very first instance uh, at the end of chapter two in verse nineteen. Uh, I call this the misleading question because uh, Sambalat. We're introduced to Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem, and they jeer at him and they say, "What is this thing that you are doing?" Are you rebelling against the king? And of course, Nehemiah's not doing that. He was very close to the king. That's where this whole book started. Mm-hmm. Cupbearer to the king. It reminds me of the accusations, the hints that were given to Pilate as he was thinking about letting Christ go. They said, are you a friend of Caesar or not? And that's what finally scared him into bowing to the Jews' wishes. So here, are you rebelling against the king? It's kind of like... Uh, do, do your friends know you beat your wife or some question like that that you can't answer yes or no to? And they're doing this very artfully as people who are accustomed to to deceit. So how does Nehemiah respond to it? Well, chapter 3, I think, is his response to it. He pulls everybody together, and you have this amazing cooperation mm-hmm. as they respond to it by basically saying, we don't believe that. We're going to show you we don't believe that by aligning ourselves behind Nehemiah with this amazing cooperation. And these phrases that begin the the verses, first it's, um, first, help me out, what is it? Uh, Next to them, next to him, every verse starts with next to, next to, next to. And then it shifts for some reason near the end of the chapter, after him, after him, after him. But those phrases denote cooperation. The second form of a lie that you have is exaggeration. This is over in chapter 4 and verses 2 and 3. Now listen to the exaggerations about this wall, the same enemies. What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the wall for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, Yeah, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. This kind of lie is effective because it takes just a kernel of truth and then blows it out of proportion. Mm -hmm. A lot of the things that they say are true. They probably were using burnt stones. They probably didn't have enough new stones to do the job without using a few old ones. They weren't going to build it in a day. But that's crazy to think that they would. They built it in 52 days. They weren't going to rebuild it in a day. They probably weren't going to be able to sacrifice immediately. So what? You're exaggerating. You're blowing this whole thing out of proportion. Now, I don't think the whole fox thing was going to happen. Mm-hmm. It'd have to be a pretty big fox. So yeah. uh, how did they respond? Well, first we have the imprecatory prayer in verses 4 and 5, which we've already talked about. Mm-hmm. And then the second response was hard work. Verse 6 says, the people had a mind to work. I really think the second response was the result of the first response from a wise leader who, like we said in the last section, didn't vent to the people or discourage the people, didn't get all defensive and waste a bunch of time, you know, um, explaining himself to his enemies who wouldn't listen to him anyway. Mm -hmm. Because he bowed his head, 
vented all these feelings to God right away, they were able to get back to work and have that kind of response. Now, the third form of a lie is in chapter 4, and I, Andrew, I could come up with a, a good word for this. I I use the word subterfuge. What's wrong and, with that word? Well, I didn't, I should have looked it up, you okay. know, before I used it on the <laughs> podcast, because I think it means um, secret yeah, maneuvering. Like sabotage or something yeah, like that. Yeah, sabotage. Maybe yeah. that's the word I should use. I like Ambush. subterfuge better. Subterfuge. That's a cool word. So that's the word, and it's because they were trying to kind of secretly overthrow them. And there's these. There's a rumor campaign, a propaganda campaign. Chapter 4, verse 8 says, They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And then in verse 11, the enemy say, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. Now the response to this is faith. Look at verse 20 of chapter 4. Our God will fight for us. But the faith is not just a mental assent that, you know, yeah, we're thinking about God and in our hearts we know He's there. It's a very responsive faith, an active faith, which is, you know, something that, you know, has all kinds of applications on its own when we come to the New Testament. But, you know, you look down and he's doing all these things. He's arming the people. He's setting them up as guards night and day. He's having them work with one hand and hold a spear in the other hand. He's setting, he's organizing them by families so it's faith is not, and it never is presented this way in the Bible. Faith is not just thinking good thoughts, positive mental thinking. You know, mm-hmm. it's not just having a good attitude, but it's very responsive. It's I know God is going to fight for us, and God wants us to do this, 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 and this. So we're going to do it. Mm-hmm. The fourth form is flattery. Flattery. Flattery is uh, telling person a lie to stroke their ego. And in the book of Proverbs, flattery is, we're warned about it all the time. I I used to work with a preacher who, I'd come in and I'd say, you know, so-and-so was telling me this good thing, and he'd always say, be careful. And it got on my nerves, because he was always like, be careful about that. So suspicious, but I think what he was trying to say is, you know, flattery is a sign of an enemy, not a sign of a friend. Uh, There's a proverb, Proverbs 25 Verses 5 and 6. Now I said it and I can't remember it. Mm -hmm. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm thinking of. That's the flattery. You know, so what's the flattery here? Does that mean I should stop, like, telling you I enjoy your sermons when I do enjoy them? If it's true. (laughs) See, we're talking about lies. Okay. Okay. So So as long as I actually enjoy them, I can tell you. If you mean it, then it's true. I'll have to start telling you that a lot less then, I guess. But you, you don't say it every time, and that's because you only say it when it's true. Okay. And when I flop, you just say, hey, Drew, how's it going? It's good to see you today. <laughs> okay, got it. Um, chapter 6, verse 2. Come, let us meet together at Hakifirim in the plain of Ono, but they intended to do me harm. Nehemiah is smart enough to know that they're not wanting to buddy up to him and start a council with him of, of any kind. This this invitation was a plot to kill him, do him harm, and he saw that. How do you how do you respond to flattery? Priorities. You remember what's important. In verse three, 
he tells them, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. That's how you deal with flattery. You remember that, you know, somebody comes up to you, oh, you're, you're so beautiful and everything that you mm-hmm. say is just perfect. Which happens and the a reason, lot. Yeah. That happens a lot. Well, the reason it works is because they're telling us what we want to hear about ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so we get all hung up on ourselves and then we find ourselves with the wrong kind of people all of a sudden. Yeah. Because we didn't keep our priorities straight. The question we should have asked is, what's this person's angle? Why are they telling me this? What's most important? How beautiful I am or is God being glorified in this? Mm-hmm. And so uh, that that's how you deal with it. You get your priorities straight. Um, I like this next one too. It's number five on my list. The fifth form of a lie. Anonymous reports. Now I know... that. This kind of messed my thing up because a name is mentioned. But look at verses 6 and 7 of chapter 6. There is a, an open this open letter that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. It is reported among the nations. Which nations? <laughs> oh, the nations. Yeah. And Geshem. And there's another. There's a. Uh, it could be in the Hebrew. Gashmu. Also says it. That you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now, come, let us take counsel together. I tried to find out who Geshem or Gashmu is, and I could not find any reference to him in the Bible. Now the Arab is Geshem is pretty close to it, but not quite. That the one of the Arab opponents in here. Mm-hmm. I couldn't find it, so I'm going with that this isn't a real guy. Just sounds like a real guy. Until somebody proves me differently. Okay. And, and this is like those anonymous reports that we hear all the time. Well people have come to me about you and said, fill in the blank. Your enemies will do that all the time. You know, I, people have been talking, and we, we need to sit down with you and talk to you about this problem, because somebody came to me, who, well, who? Well, I, I don't want to get into that. It's confidential. How did Nehemiah handle the response? He used reason or logic. Verses 8 and 9. No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking... Their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. Nehemiah knew their strategies. He stopped, mm-hmm. took a breath, used a little logic, and he realized they're, they're making this up. They're making this up. That's the way you handle anonymous reports. Somebody comes to you with a complaint from an anonymous source. Now, this isn't me. I love you. But I think that you should know that somebody has said, well, who is it? And if they don't give you a name... You don't pay any attention to it. Don't respond to it in any way whatsoever. Mm-hmm. If you get a letter, as I've received before, that is completely anonymous, or some comment on your blog or you know whatever, mm-hmm. and you don't know who it's... I don't know why I'm aiming right at you, Andrew, but I'm talking <laughs> to everybody. And Have you, you don't know who it came from. letters recently? <laughs> don't pay attention to it. And that's the way you handle that kind of stuff. Last... False teaching. Um, verse 10 of chapter 6, he goes to the house of, you call him a friend, I think you're right. This 
was at least supposed to be an ally of Nehemiah, Shemaiah, the son of Deliah. Uh, this guy was confined to his home, and he says, Let us meet together in the house of God, in the temple, within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming, meaning they're coming to my house, to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. But then Nehemiah saw through this. Should such a man as I run away? He says to this guy, What man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him. But he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. This is the reason why I call it false teaching because it was evidently from what we see in verse 12, it was presented as prophecy. Mm-hmm. This is God's word. They're coming to kill you. So it doesn't come out and say it, but if you read the whole thing, it's clear that Shemaiah was saying, I've received a word from the Lord. You're going to be killed at my house. Let's go to the temple. But Nehemiah knew the word of God. And so he says, I saw that God had not sent him. So you have the response to false teaching there, which is belief in the truth. And the truth for us is God's word. Jesus told us to beware of false prophets in Matthew seven fifteen, and he told them, you will recognize them by their fruits. Take the teaching, put it alongside God's word, which is God's will for your life, and you'll be able to tell whether or not, you know, it is true. So that is, you know, a good example of uh, different forms of lies and how to handle them. And we didn't have enough time to spend on it. We talked about the imprecatory prayer, but there are a lot of prayers throughout here, uh, four out of these six times, there are prayers. So four times out of six, we have a prayer recorded. And Nehemiah being the man that he is, I'm confident that he prayed every time somebody opposed him with with these lies. We're going to face lies all the time, so we should look at this example and allow it to prepare us for when we face them the way that we do. Anything else to add in terms of application? Not in terms of application. We do have this question. Oh, yeah, let's get to the question. That we need to get to. I'm pulling it up right here. Uh, One of our listeners. Mm -hmm. This is based on our first episode, which was Ezra, the return to worship. And the question is this, um, and I think it just boils down to simply us botching something here. Uh, We said in our first episode that the first year of King Cyrus was 538 B.C. But we said that Cyrus had just received a resounding defeat in 539. According to him. Yes. So (laughs) this is probably... No, this is... I'm sure... This is probably me. And we've got... I know that in our study, like the dates I get don't necessarily match up with the ones you've got. They're... We're within like two or three years of each other, but just different commentaries have got some different dates, and some of these things yeah, are kind of... we're talking about things that happened 25, 2600 years ago, Yeah, and you know, you've got the whole deal about when did, when does the line between B.C. and A.D. begin, because there, there have been some changes in that, and there, mm-hmm. so naturally, when you're talking B.C., you're going to be off by a few, six months to a year one way or the other. Yeah. So we sometimes say 539, sometimes we say 538 with regard to Cyrus's 
reign when mm-hmm. he when he seized power and came in and defeated uh, this would be Babylon yeah. and released the Jews. I like to think in terms of the release of the Jews. Jeremiah prophesied seventy years. That whole thing began. The captivity began in six oh five or six oh six. You see both those dates yeah. thrown out. Seventy years from that means the whole captivity phase was completed in five thirty six. So Cyrus came in five thirty nine, five thirty eight, sometime around there. Yeah. A little while afterwards, the Jews were released. That's roughly seventy years. Maybe it was 536, maybe it was a little earlier than that. But roughly speaking, these dates, you know, fall in at a pretty good place. We don't always get it, uh, we can't get it exactly right. Mm -hmm. But is that all there was to the question? It was like, also something about when Cyrus was defeated. Yeah, we may mention that Cyrus returned from a resounding defeat in 539, and just for... I guess I like, think I, we said that. Now we maybe the person who asked the question means that Cyrus was the victor. Mm-hmm. He defeated the Babylonians. That's the way I'm going to read that until another question is posted that I can understand a little better. Mm-hmm, but because we have, he was the victor, and he, I don't think Cyrus was ever defeated by anybody. We have. We might have. Um, looking here. Um, yeah, we do have. I'm looking at our notes from our first one we did, and we have 539 or 538. It's actually what I have in my notes. 539 or 538. Cyrus had just defeated Babylon. Okay. Um, maybe if I was doing this, I might have actually. I think I was doing the outline for this one. I think I might have accidentally said Cyrus had been defeated. Okay. Maybe instead of he defeated. So maybe I'm going to go back to, and listen to it. Okay. And then the next podcast. If there was a mistake... Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm fired. No. Okay. Uh, well, we we really appreciate the questions. And oh, yeah. Any questions that you can give, we would love to take a little time to answer them. You can send them to us a variety of ways. You can post a comment now to our website, mm-hmm. the66.net. Uh, you can put them on our uh, Twitter feed that would be fun to have somebody tweet a question in Mm -hmm. Uh, you can uh, we don't have Facebook right now I don't know that we ever will Uh, it might be useful but right now we're just doing Twitter Mm -hmm. you can send them to akingsley at arcoc.com or dkaiser at arcoc.com again keep checking with the66.net for new episodes Pretty soon we're going to get our iTunes feed fixed. Um, we're yeah. waiting on iTunes to do that. We're we, on week three right now. Yeah, a long time ago, three or four weeks ago, we posted it up and we reposted it today because we we're getting no results. Yeah. But when that comes in, then it'll really be screaming through your uh, podcast devices. You can use a variety of uh, applications in order to get it coming to your phone or device or iPad or whatever it is that you listen to. Please continue to listen. We're trying to make this better all the time. It's a it's a process. It's evolving. And uh, we feel like we're getting better. And I hope that you think so too. Please keep, check, keep listening in and we'll keep covering the books of the Bible. And uh, that concludes our episode for this time. Thanks for listening.